man, Tim, I don't remember exactly the circumstances, but I believe it was when Becca, Becca, when you were diagnosed with cancer, and Tim called me, and as we, as we would do, we would talk about God, and this conversation about God was a little different than a lot of the other ones for what was going on in your, your, y'all's lives at that point. And I remember, what I remember about that conversation is Tim and I coming to the conclusion that, yeah, that God's goodness was not going to be contingent upon how it turned out. But that God is good because God is good. I hope we all know that this morning. I told you a little bit about my granddad last week, Papa, who... Uh, a veteran from uh, Korean uh, War and who we got to spend time with, which that time has been few and far between over the Fourth of July weekend. We got to be together with with him, and I, I've I've told you this, but I'll I, I, he and Grandma and their commitment to reminding our family about God's goodness, God's faithfulness, over and over again. And I, I say it again. I pray that you are in that this morning, that you know that. I know it comes and goes. It it wanes a bit at times based on circumstances, but I pray that our work together here at the church at Harvard Heights helps bolster your understanding of God's goodness in all of life's trials. We're in Ephesians today, chapter 2. We are talking about our mission statement for the next three weeks, our mission to engage each whole person with the whole gospel of Jesus Christ anywhere, anytime, with anybody. And our ability to keep that at the forefront of our hearts and minds as we go about ministering in our community to one another, to those who are not yet part of our church, as we have gospel conversations, as we live in and play with and care, grow, and equip one another in our groups as we go and serve in so many different ways, whether it's in our neighborhood, as Jolly explained so beautifully, or in Alaska or anywhere else in the world. Pray that over you. This morning. We're going to be in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. You can turn to it. We'll get to it in just a moment. When I was driving Papa home, uh, I don't think I told you this last week, but um, the reason we ended up going by downtown to see the Korean uh, Veterans Bridge was because I was just talking up a storm at him and my Aunt Kim. I talk a lot. And I, I, north of the city where Browley Parkway is now, there are, more, there are more signs. I didn't know this. And so I just drove straight to Ellington Parkway and did not go to his house at all. And so I found myself, um, you know, going the wrong direction. Now, I knew I was going the wrong direction pretty quickly because I could see the signs and they were obviously not going the right way. And fortunately, I've lived here long enough that I could figure it out, but... It's a silly way to make this point. That's where we all get at times. And we find ourselves careening, maybe going slowly, 
in the wrong direction. And my hunch is that those of us following and being formed by Jesus, we realize it eventually that we're going in the wrong direction. And we hopefully turn it around. We certainly have a better chance of turning it around when we live our lives in community with one another, when we have accountability, when we have people that can see that we're going in the wrong direction um, and help us to get back on track. I've had that in my life, uh, and I'm so grateful for it. I pray that you do as well. It's one of the main functions of our groups. Um, That's why we want you all to be a part of a group if you're not already. Now, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, I think is as good a section, segment of Scripture as there is to help define what that way is for us. This is one of Paul's greatest hits right here as he was writing to the church in Ephesus and trying to get them to understand exactly how they were to adhere to this gospel that we are seeking to engage each whole person with, the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. And one thing um, that I learned when I was studying Ephesians a few years ago uh, by the work of Pastor Eugene Peterson was Paul uses the word saint in Ephesians a lot. And I always thought that saints were people like my granddad or grandma, you know, people who were more experienced in life, who had lived through it. But Peterson clarifies that, and saints are actually anybody following and being formed by Jesus. Anybody who would call themselves, as we sang earlier, a child of God. Anyone who is in God's family, co-heirs with Christ, as we learned in Romans 8 last month. You are a saint, and you are uniquely designed to help one another along to adhere to this whole gospel. Adhere to Christ, who absolutely can and will transform our lives. So be encouraged with that today. God is in you. You are in Christ, able to encourage and to help one another along. The gospel that we are trying to engage each whole person with, N.T. Wright reminds us, is both what Jesus said and did when he was on earth, mentioned this to you last week, but it bears repeating, leading all the way to the cross and to his resurrection, to his ascension, his appearances before his ascension, and him leaving the Holy Spirit with us to guide us, to comfort us, to help us live into Philippians 4 that Scott read during the prayer time. And it's also what the apostles, like Paul, those who lived with Jesus or were connected with someone who did and saw him minister. It's what they said about how Jesus lived and what he did. And we find that throughout the rest of the New Testament. And again, no place, I believe, any more important or clear than our text this morning. Now, what I have described is how we can be one with God and one with each other. And this text helps us see that. So if you look with me at verses 1 through 3, the text reads, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, 
the Spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. So, verse 3 says we were formerly dead, formerly dead, following our, the passions of our flesh. Now, remember back when we looked at Romans 8 last month, if you were with us, Paul used flesh quite a bit in that text. And we saw at that time how his use of flesh, it meant more, it was deeper, it was bigger, it was grander than just commentary about our bodies. Flesh goes beyond our bodies to reference the whole person. Now, one of the translations, I don't know if Tim, if you've gotten to this one yet, maybe not, but do you do paraphrases? on the Bible Review blog, but one of the paraphrases that you may be most familiar with is by Eugene Peterson called The Message, and many people have that on their shelves. Another one of the paraphrases is by N.T. Wright. It's called The Kingdom New Testament, and I was drawn to it this week because of how Dr. Wright uh, translates verse 2 in Ephesians 2. I believe we have that. Yes. That was the road you used to travel, keeping in step with the world's present age. That's an important um, way Dr. Wright puts that there, the present age. That's where we find ourselves now, where we have one foot in how the world still is. Even those of us who are following and being formed by Jesus, we are still um, affected by the brokenness in the world. We are still influenced by it, and at times we mess up. The present age, where we are leaning into what our inheritance will be, but still bound to this world that is so broken. In step with the ruler of the power of the air, the the spirit that is even now at work among people whose, look at that, whole lives consist of disobeying God. Whose whole lives. Now our mission statement is that we would engage each whole person, whole life, with the whole gospel. And here we have... In this paraphrase, the text using, and to write using whole lives to describe our life before we commit to following and being formed by Jesus. Now, the theological term here we, we understand is called total depravity. It's one that I like to think about and consider. It, I, I've, I've lived in it for a long time that I am... I'm a part of this world that my flesh is, is what it is. I'm broken Um, Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Romans 7.24, Paul says, what a wretched man I am. And I had trouble with that at times because I also see people who very much do not follow Jesus who would do very good things, you know. And I, who would tell you I am following Jesus, I would do some really crummy things. And so that can be confusing at times. And it was Dr. Miroslav Wolf. at Yale, one of our leading New Testament theologians who helped clarify this for me. I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I found it important, and it's always stuck with me. He clarified total depravity to, to mean that there is no part of us as, a, as, as an individual, you as an individual, or us as a community, that is at, at least that is not at least touched by sin, by brokenness. So we're not all bad is what Wolf is saying. But 
all of we are, all that we are, our whole life is influenced, it's touched by sin, by the brokenness in the world. And that spoke to me. I found that helpful. We see Paul here spelling out the difference between being dead and being alive. The difference between our whole lives consisting of disobedience or our whole lives consisting of righteousness. You see, because it's all or nothing. And because we are unable to rescue ourselves from this life of disobedience, we needed, we need to be saved. The truth is the ruler of the power of the air. Think about that. Think about how the air just influences effects. We can't get away from the air. It's an interesting way to, to describe what Paul likely means as Satan, sin in the world. The ruler of the power of the air who holds sway over us. Even those of us who were dead still are in essence in this present age. We're straddling this world and the world that is to come. Now, verse 3 does something interesting. It transitions from Paul addressing you, and who he's addressing here is you Gentiles, you people in Ephesus, you people who are not part of God's chosen people, the Jews, to in verse 3, all of us. It's really cool. So he's not just saying, hey, sinners, come on and get in line. We all need to follow Jesus, especially you. He says, me too. Which Anne Lamott interestingly says, author Anne Lamott says, is the greatest testimony anybody can utter. Come on. It makes sense to you, doesn't it? Somebody says, me too. Especially somebody who's, who you know loves you. Who's standing with you in your pain. They say, me too. In verse 3 here, Paul says, me too. Us too. Following the passions of our flesh does not just manifest itself individually. Individually, it does so corporately. It does so communally. And this involves the ways that we are complicit in, in, in things that are broken, in things that are not yet as God would have them to be. I mean, it has come under, it's been so obvious in the last 15 months that one of the highest callings in Leslie Ann in my life is, the, is our home. And... And, and it has been hard during the pandemic to love one another well, to be patient with one another, to see our kids hurting in a, in a variety of ways. And we have needed help during that time. We have to recognize where things are not yet, and it's everywhere, as God would have them to be and to help make them more so. I counted up this week. I, I've, been to, I, I've gotten to travel to Haiti nine times in the last... Nine years, not in the last three years since I've, I've uh, been here. We've been busy. But an unthinkable assassination this week in a country that is having such a hard time staying whole. Things are so broken there. My friends there have no idea how things are going to come together and be safe again. We need to pray for Haiti. Gas and, and, and clean water is scarce right now. Shipments not coming in. 
And it was already in low supply because of the economics that were there anyway. It's not okay for people not to have enough to eat or clean water to drink, for, for children to not have a roof over their head. I'll never forget stepping off of the bus in Rio de Janeiro when I was 19 years old and, and 20-some children ran up to us wanting change. I, maybe you I had never seen this before. I, who are these kids? They're homeless. And they're eight. And they had the wherewithal to be able to ask for change when they saw Americans. Y'all, there is no excuse for people in our world today. Our world that has so much for someone not to have basic needs. And we must understand that these powers that come up against us individually and communally, they're from the ruler of the power of the air. And they are very real. And they stand in opposition to the only true life-giving power, which is the power of God. The ruler of the power of the air is not trying, in my, my humble opinion, as much to get you to do heinous, awful things as it's trying just to get you to be distracted. And me to take our eyes off of all the good which we can do, all of the darkness which we can push against. We must not live hopelessly, though. Now, we are hopeless without Christ. We're helpless without Christ. Now, some, some folks would have you believe that somewhere it is written in the Bible that God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. That is a cultural proverb that is contrary to the gospel. The Bible actually teaches that God helps the helpless. And Paul is teaching us just that in this passage. Let's look at verses 4 through 7. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You were saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable Riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This is what Becca just sang over us. This is Paul testifying to the goodness of God. Who is God in your life, church? N.T. Wright calls it the spy in the sky, God. It's up there watching us, checking our moves, you know, and we might get hide from a little bit like Jonah tried to, or if we're honest, we know we can't hide. And then when we really need something, we call out to God. We'll say a prayer here and there. We check in. Man, that is not God as Paul understood God. Do you see this text? God who is rich in mercy. God who is rich 
in goodness. Listen, we, ha- we have to be overwhelmed by God. Not to get God to love us because God does. When's the last time you were knocked off your feet by the goodness of God? Don't be ashamed if you never have been. It's not your fault. We live in a place that has a lot. It is not uncommon for somebody to live a long time and not realize their need for something far outside that exceeds themselves. But God, who is rich in mercy, has to knock us off our feet if we truly understand who God is communicating, who Paul is communicating to us here is God. Now, just as verse 3 tells us that we are complicit together in our sin, verse 5 tells us we are made alive together with Christ. Christ, who has been raised from the dead and seated at the right. Well, listen, to I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to read Paul telling you. Look at verse 20 back in chapter 1. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Indeed, if you are, if you are saved by grace, you have been made alive together with all others who are saved by grace. And together, Paul is saying here, we make up the church. And we have the very power of God with us, in us, working through us. Our life together with God is not just a one-time transaction. It is a lifetime of transformation. We are not trying to get people to sign up, to get signatures on a page, butts and seats. We are introducing people to the whole gospel, which is a God who is rich in mercy and is God's vehicle for salvation is Jesus And Jesus' work is transformation. Transformation in your life and mine. Let's look at verses 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not the result of works so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. We see Paul again shift from you to we in these three verses. Disobedience is common to us all. Helplessness apart from Christ is common to us all. Our common reality is that depravity has touched us in all areas. It is this fallenness. It is this brokenness. And the ruler of the power of the air shows no favorites in desiring to kill us all. So we must fight not to kill one another. We have got to be in this together, understanding what our commonality is. Yes, it's our brokenness, but it's also our Savior who has done everything through Christ to remedy this brokenness in our lives as individuals and in our world communal. If we are going to desire each whole person to believe the whole gospel and be transformed by it, we have to live it out. 
And when we don't, we have to call ourselves out and one another out. And we have to repent and we have to turn around and go in the right direction. I couldn't keep following Ellington Parkway. I never would have gotten Papa home. When it changed for me, I, I, and I know I've told many of you that I've, I've had a very significant experience traveling through Alabama and Mississippi and learning things about the civil rights movement that I never, ever had been taught. And I know that we've come a long way, and I'm so grateful for that. But I know there's still work to be done in many areas for us to all know that we are children of God, and I will never forget hearing Dr. Catherine Meeks, who Dr. Meeks is the executive director of the Absalom Jones Episcopal Center for Racial Healing. And she talked about the time when her dad, who was a poor sharecropper in Louisiana uh, in the 60s, uh, when his life changed completely. You see, her brother, Dr. Meeks' younger brother, became very ill. And as she told us the story, the, the hospital down the street would not take her brother. Um, he was to go to the nearest uh, um, charity hospital uh, because uh, they were poor and because he was black. And 75 miles was how far the nearest hospital that he could go to was. Well... By the time they were able to find a ride and to get him there, he had, his illness had gotten worse. And her brother died. His condition deteriorated to the point he was not able to respond to treatment. This incredibly formative experience for this family that effectively really hurt her dad for the rest of his life. And she spoke of that pain. Now, I'm so grateful. I have a 12-year-old. And I'm so grateful that would not happen anymore. But leaning into what Paul is telling us about our condition, about the fact that the ruler of the power of the air is still out there, the fact that we are still one foot straddled in this present age and one foot straddled in the age to come, we cannot sit by our laurels and not realize that there is still great work to be done. Tim said it to me this morning. I was going to mention it. We don't read verse 10 enough. You've told me that a lot. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Dallas Willard says this. He says, can we believe that being saved has nothing whatsoever to do with the kind of persons that we are? No. Salvation does not neglect the kind of persons we are. Salvation is not transactional. It is transformational. And they will know us, Christians, by our love. Human character matters. Who we are now matters. And it inspires what we do. And when somebody looks at our church, what will they say are the things that we do? To engage each whole person with the whole gospel of Jesus Christ is not to just get people to admit they are a sinner. 
to confess and believe. That is a huge part of it. And I want us to do a whole lot more of that. We have a world that is full of folks that need to repent. We all do if we believe this text. But we can't leave one another there. There is work to do. And God ordained that work a long time ago before any of us were around. It matters so much what we are doing because this God who is so rich in mercy is desperate to show the world just how so through you and me. transformational. How is it changing us? Where is that fruit in our lives? I pray that it is ripe and will continue to be so. Let's pray.